0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 309 of the podcast. It is June 28th, 2018. Back with me again on the podcast, following up on episode 304, is my friend David Meyer, a Lean and Toyota production system consultant who's a former Toyota leader at their plant in Georgetown, Kentucky. And as we mentioned last time briefly, what he's gotten into more recently, perhaps the most Kentucky of the industries is making bourbon. So in today's episode, and it's a long one, we really uh, both kind of geek out on the topics here of, of bourbon and other types of whiskey and the process. And there's a little bit of lean talk thrown in around continuous improvement, talking about The Suntory uh, company from Japan buying Jim Beam and some of the culture clash um, that uh, seems to be taking place there. And, you know, so if you if you share this interest in both topics, this might be uh, your favorite episode ever. of The podcast, of course, if you don't have any interest in bourbon, I would certainly understand you skipping this one. But if you want to learn more about David's uh, distillery, a link to Glen's Creek, um, there's a link to an article titled Helping the Whiskey Flow Toyota Style that was published in the IISE magazine. There's all sorts of other links and resources here if you go to leanblog.org slash 309. Cheers. The other thing we're going to talk about here today, you, you moved into a new opportunity, a new challenge, I guess shifting from uh, being a, being a consultant, nothing wrong with that. That's what I do. But to, uh, well, to, to having your own operation to run, right. <laughs> if you can tell us about, about that and how that came to be, I
1: guess for a long time, I had thought, wouldn't it be great to have, have a company that you you know did something or made something. And I'd kind of explored different things and, um, it just didn't really find anything that, that seemed to make sense. Um, and you know, as you well know, the the, the issue as a consultant is it, it's great, but at the end of that, you know, I always thought it was funny when I do my taxes every year, it's like, oh here's your PL. What what assets do you have? A computer, a printer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you're not building something necessarily is one thing. Um, you know, you're oftentimes you're in and working with an organization for a year or two years and you don't always necessarily see, you know, your efforts come to fruition because it takes longer. So, the, you know, there's certain things about it that, that – um, and, and and then the travel. You know, I'm almost 60 and I'm thinking, geez, I'm, you know, how much longer am I going to slog on an airplane and go, go here and there and everywhere? And um, so looking for something that would be closer to home. So, um, it was, it, there really was no grand plan. I mean, I think the thing I get asked most often is, so is this something you always wanted to do? And I say, no, (laughs) is this something, you know, did you work at another distillery? No. Is, you know, has it been in your family? No. Um, so then people look at me kind of puzzled, like, well, then why'd you do it? (laughs) Well, you know, um, the, the the truth of the matter, I guess, was I I was dabbling a bit, just um, you know, I guess I was a moonshiner, and um, just and you know, you what I do is I'm a process guy. I've been in manufacturing for 35 years. I I enjoy processes. I enjoy learning processes and understanding processes. And, um, you know, it's kind of just goofing around with this and discovered that, you know, there's all these interesting variables to it and, you know, how do you manage those and control those? So kind of things that I'm trying to talk to other organizations about, I'm trying to think about how to do those in this context. And, um, And then a friend of mine mentioned this distillery, this old abandoned distillery that was for sale and thought it might be cool. Um, And so it's just one of those things. You just look at the place and thought, man, this is really cool place. Um, And in true male fashion, you know, kind of look at it and go, you know, a little pressure washing and some paint. This place (laughs) look pretty good. Um, Totally underestimating and, and, not really comprehending the uh, amount of effort and work, but um, you know, as I say, if you love what you're doing, you don't spend a day working.
0: No, yeah,
1: it's been it's been fun. I mean, we get to do things. We get the thing to me that's interesting is um, the nature of the nature of the processes is, is similar to a lot of organizations I've worked with that don't have repetitive uh, processes. So whether it's like healthcare or these industries where, you know, the operators are more what I call machine tenders, but they don't have to sit there and perform the same task, you know, 500 times a day. Right. Their work is more variable and it becomes more challenging to think about things like, well, how do you create standardized work in this environment? You know, um, so, so it's been interesting from that standpoint, um, to, to tackle this. And I guess too, I had to look at it and said, well, geez, what's, what could possibly be one of the most difficult businesses you could ever get into because of the limitations, because of the laws, because of the restrictions. Um, so I guess that's how I, ended up
0: there. yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of, um, competition, you've got, uh, long lead times to age <laughs> product before it goes to market. Um, there probably is many reasons somebody might have used to try to talk you out of this as opposed to talking you, uh, talking you into it, but it's, um, you know, it seems like, a, 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 you know, it's real, uh, passion. Um, whenever I've had the chance to meet, um, somebody who owns a distillery or a winemaker or, you know, it's, it's a business, but there's kind of a different level to it where it's um, something people are just really uh, drawn to or, or fall in love with. And, yeah. and it's a big, complicated puzzle to unravel and enjoy it while you're doing it, I guess.
1: You know, I, it, it's been kind of interesting because um, I, I found certainly, Around Kentucky anyway, and I've traveled to other states when I'm doing work, and I usually try to find a local distillery and kind of yeah. go there and talk to folks. Um, the, the whole, to, for, for me personally, I've never really seen competition as like, I gotta beat this other guy down so that I can get a step up. I, I much prefer the collaboration approach, which is why the thing, know the books with liker worked out well because we had a really pretty good collaboration between us on that um and and that to me that works better and um so you know i've had a lot of interactions with other people and discussions and we can you know toss things back and forth Um, i think that you know I'll, i'll put it in perspective for you okay so uh, the old Crow Distillery, when it was in operation, um, had about 600,000 barrels uh, in storage for aging. Um, Bean bought that operation in 1987 and they retained many of those aging warehouses. So they have about 400,000 barrels aging right next door to us. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and if, if you understand that those barrels, they say the angel share of the evaporation is. Approximately 3% per year. Um, when you do the math, that comes out to about 500,000 gallons per year evaporation from those Yikes. barrels. Right. Okay. Now, to put it in perspective, Mark, we produce about two barrels a week. <laughs> okay. So their evaporation rate is greater than our production. <laughs> Right. And and I honestly don't think that I'm ever going to have to worry about, you know, am I encroaching on Jim Beam's market share? Sure. Um. So so from a competition standpoint, I really don't think about it that way much. I think I think what's really cool in this industry is kind of what happened in beer is is that the small guys are able to try different things and that then sort of pushes the big guys to also Mm -hmm. branch out into those things and and if you look at bourbon today and what you can find on the shelf today um i think it's substantially better than when i first came to kentucky in 1980 i mean it was you know 80 proof you know standard run-of-the-mill stuff was pretty much it you know, you didn't find single barrel. You didn't find small batch. You didn't find this or that or some of these other things that are mm. happening now.
0: So what I, what I hear you're saying is, you know, and I, and I see this uh, on store shelves and in my own collection, um, there's more variety. There's um, yes. different uh, different strengths, different barrel finishes, different expressions. Um, yeah, so there's, there's one element of quality. And, you know, I've, I've only been drinking bourbon for— uh, i don't know 10 years i mean i got into yeah. scotch first and um yeah. Yeah, i i hear some folks uh, you know people i know who are older who kind of grouse and say like yeah, if you know you know, if you compare you know your standard basic high quality bourbon that oh it was better back then which that could be uh rose colored glasses uh whatever uh, human nature that thinks something in the past must have been better than the stuff today. Um, I mean, what, what, what do people say in Kentucky about that dimension of, of quality? Have people gotten better at making bourbon or is there just more variety uh, available?
1: You know, I, I wouldn't say the question is better. I would say the question is, is, is different. Um, I've had the opportunity to try some 1950s and 1960s bourbons from different distilleries and they're, and they're really quite different from bourbons of today and I think that's probably because the market tends to try to follow consumer preferences, right? that, the big issue in, in bourbon was in the 80s sales were at an all-time low because uh, adult drinkers, the young folks were shifting to to vodka and other beverages of that nature. And, you know, bourbon was your grandpa's drink. And so the industry, I think shifted And, and even in the seventies, they came out with light whiskey, right. To try to, to capture some of that market that maybe didn't want the, the flavorful hmm. bourbon. So, you know, there's trends. I would say there's yeah. trends and, you know, things. Um, the bourbon, I, I think bourbon is, is different than certain drinks. Like rum, one of the things about rum is it can be made anywhere in the world and the limitations are, are not many. In other words, it has to be sugarcane-based, and, and beyond that, there's all kinds of things you can do. Bourbon has to follow some very kind of clear guidelines about what you're allowed to do, and so by nature, by definition, it's you're not going to have this big variety of stuff. Right? has to be at least 51% corn, has to be distilled under 160 proof, has to go into a new charred oak container, has to go in at 125 or less, has to be bottled at 80 or more, and two important things must be made in the United States, and the final one is must not have any additives no coloring no flavoring nothing added mm-hmm. but water right so that limits you know the to, to some degree it limits the range of what you can do with it but but honestly not there's there's endless options within those parameters of what you can do
0: yeah yeah i mean the uh ingredients uh well, you know the, the the mash bill the mix of what else is yep. in there uh beyond the fifty one percent corn um the type of barrel the the aging? I mean, like when I, I had a chance to go to Scotland um a couple of times, and they emphasize how even the physical shape and angles of the copper still can affect the output um, <laughs> they, you know the the, the same product say, going into two different stills, yeah.
1: They say that. I think that's kind of baloney. I'm not sure. I, I'd be curious to do a
0: side-by-side side comparison of the same product four, coming off two to, two different stills. Yeah,
1: right now, I've got four different stills. Each one is different from the others, and yeah, to some degree, the output is a little different, but it has more to do with the configuration than it is the mm-hmm. angle of this or that. But, but no, there, there, there's kind of an endless <laughs> variety there, and I think that that's kind of what appeals to me because it doesn't have to get routine and boring, but, um, you know, from the, from the lean perspective, getting back to how it compares to lean, you know, I've had some of my lean buddies come in and look and go, Oh, you know, you really ought to think about flow. And I just kind of roll my eyes at them and say, look, the building that I'm in wasn't designed for this purpose. And we need certain things like I need, have the door to the outside so that we can wash out a certain container. So that's where it is. It's near the door because that's where the door is. Mm. I didn't (laughs) build the door into the building. That's where it was, right? And at this point, I'm not going to spend however much money to relocate it because, A, I don't have that money, and, B, it's not that big a deal because it's not something we do – you know, several hundred times a day. And so, you know, people who who learn something about lean and with all their good intentions still look at a situation and don't step back from it and study a little bit longer and say, okay, wait a minute. How many times do you actually have to do that particular thing? Right. And yes, it's 20 feet away from the other thing, but... You know, that's not, I'm not walking 20 feet back and forth continuously all day long. Yeah,
0: right. It comes back to the point, I think, you know, you were talking about earlier of having solutions versus understanding what's important and what the problems are, you know, like what, what's, you know, what are the bottlenecks and what's the bottleneck in your business? What are the, what are the main issues that you need to solve? I mean, at some point we all generally have to prioritize and
1: right. Yeah. Well, it's been really exciting because, um, you know, once once the guys have have understood, um, you know, what are we trying to accomplish, uh, they they come to me and they say, you know, for example, some time ago, uh, over a year ago, it's was like, you know what, we think we can double we can double the capacity on cooking, and and they know they already know that I'm going to say okay. Um, What I how how are you going to test that? How are we going to validate that? (laughs) I see the methods you're talking about. How are we going to make sure that that doesn't affect this, this, or this? And so they're already prepared with that, and they can already say, "Yep, we've tried this, and here's what we here's what we found out." Blah blah blah. So they you know they work through it, and then I say, "Okay, great, but now if we if we cook twice as much, we're going to have twice as much in the fermenting room and twice as much in the still. What effect is that going to have?" You know, yeah, you can you can cook all you want, but if you don't have the distillation capacity,
0: mm-hmm. what's the yeah?
1: So yeah, the bottleneck, quote unquote. You know, there's always something, and so then we say, okay, if I increase the distillation capacity, now I have the opportunity to cook more. But oh wait, I got to pay for the grain, the labor, the utilities, yeah. and the barrel to to put all that stuff away to age, right? So that you know there's always some constraint quote unquote within the system. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been great to watch the guys to understand and, and to look sometimes at, uh, what, what, what's kind of fascinating to me is to realize sometimes that, that these, these, uh, know, kind of realizations of opportunities. And when they come forward and I look at them and I think, geez, why didn't we think of that six months ago? You know, it's been right in front of us all along. And and then I'm kind of reminded that really Kaizen by nature is a sort of iterative process that that when I study it and I think about it, I realize, well, there was two, other, two or three other things in the process that changed that then made it obvious that this could change. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That, 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 and, and the, you know, the Toyota guys kind of alluded to that, but they would always use metaphors, you know, and say, well, you got to clear the clouds or, you know, you got to get, you got to get these things, you know, when they'd say that they're really meaning, you got to get these things out of your mind. These things are kind of cluttering your view of what you're looking at. And until you get those things out of the way, you can't really see other things. And so, you know, those kind of things are coming back to me. I'm going, yeah, and I can see that's firsthand that we're sort of in the, you know, we're, we're so far we've been in a perpetual startup mode
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we keep improving and we keep expanding and then we keep, you know, making it better. Um, and so that's been kind of interesting too is that, that in terms of quote unquote stability, well, the time we stabilize the process we find a way to make this part of it better which means then we have to make other parts of it better. Right? You can't go out and can't go out and build a bigger still if there's no, nothing to put in it or you can't go out and cook more if there's no way to ferment it or distill it. So um, you know, we, we make a change in one area which means we have to make a change in two other areas.
0: So you're figuring this out. You're working with others to to figure out not just uh, how to get the distillery up and running, how to produce a good product, how to sell it, but you're bringing others along on this lean discovery journey. And I'm sure you're discovering, you know, kind of you know, how best to apply lean and and TPS and everything you've learned uh, to to that operation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you know. Mm-hmm. There's certain things I haven't done as a consultant. You know, I, I typically don't go into operations and say, "Gee, you know, you guys, you guys really need to get with 5s and you need to do this and you need to do this wall to wall." I think I think it's a useful process in the right context. And one of the things that we struggle with is, aside from the distilling, which we have, you know fairly standardized processes and we can, you know, uh, have, have effective process there is, you know, I bought a property that had been abandoned 30 years. Um, so there was no maintenance to the facilities, it was overgrown, the buildings are, you know, in disrepair. Um we're putting in, you know, we're we're building all the stuff ourselves. We built the stills, we built the water systems, the bottling line, you know, everything there we put together. And um so so we end up doing a lot of one off tasks, which makes it hard to, you know, I'll buy a tool that we use one time and it's like, okay, I'm not going to put this thing on a shadow board or something like that, you know? So that to me, that's kind of one of the challenges right now is that we, we have so many things going on that we struggle with. Um, You know, the concept of a place for everything and everything in its place. Um, And, and I wonder, you know, I wonder sometimes because we are kind of in that, uh, perpetual startup growth mode if we'll ever get to the point where we don't have to do those things because there's still I mean I got 16 acres and we've sort of made progress on three or four of those acres and we've you know patched together the buildings to some degree to to make them functional but there's still a lot to do so much yeah. to do
0: Yeah. so do you go through um annual cycles of strategy deployment and, and try to prioritize, you know, what the prior, you know, how do you figure out priorities for, for the business? Are there lessons from Toyota and your lean work that you apply from more of that higher level organizational problem solving and, and planning process?
1: You know, I'll, I'll tell you the truth right now. That's probably an area where I'm, I'm really deficient. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with the basics of the business in terms of cash flow, you know, as you well know, there's that delay time while the product ages. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are out there trying to figure out some way to shortcut that. And, and we, you know, I did find ways to reduce it dramatically. Uh, the, the challenge is. A lot of the, the, you know, the shortcuts that are out there uh, appear to deliver a inferior product. And so that's not acceptable. And so uh, um, I, I can say that the time spent in a barrel is nowhere near what the industry wants you to think it needs to be based on how you do things. Um, but the, the, the real issue for me is um, I spend most of my time thinking about how am I going to pay the bills. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, you know, uh, I fall into that trap and I've got I've got some guys now who, who are working with me that I think we can start to sit down and, and be more strategic in how we go about it. I mean, you know, I it, things people say to me, you know, the famous line, you know what we need? I said, yeah, we need about a million things. Um, this isn't just starting a business, which happens to be a challenging business. This is also trying to preserve and ultimately restore, um, many buildings and a lot of property with a very limited budget. I mean, I, this is definitely a shoestring and, um, So, you know, I can look around and say, yeah, I've put plans together. I've got a long term plan. I got a long term vision. And there's, you know, there's an intent there. Um, But it also takes time and money. And uh, to at least one of those, I don't have an unlimited supply of.
0: Well, I mean, you're having to help separate, you know, if somebody says, here's what we need, is it a need versus a want? Is it a, a must have versus nice to have? I mean, those are questions, seems like any, any business always has to ask, right?
1: It is, it, and it is, and that's, you know, again, I think that gets back to the thing with problem solving where people look at a situation and go, you know what we need? We need this. Well, okay, do we? Do we actually need that? And, and one of the things I've learned, and this is kind of funny, I think, probably, is, is I've learned this effective procrastination, right, <laughs> to be able to say, okay, instead of me falling into that, let me just sit back and wait and see how this plays out. Because invariably, you know, some time period will go by, let's say a month, and somebody will say again, oh, you know, we talked about that, we need that. And then I'll wait and then I'll wait and then invariably a more effective idea actually arises, mm. you know, and, and I think the Toyota guys did that sometimes, too, where they would they would know that we're sort of jumping to some conclusion about what we should do. And they would just sort of somehow delay us, you know, and realize that that ultimately we'll find something better. And um, that, that's kind of an interesting thing I've noticed is like, geez, sometimes, you know, really, and, I, and I know, I've known these things, the, the challenge is sometimes you look at it and you say, well, there's two options. Neither one of those looks particularly good, you know, and um, so I've, I've sort of learned, you know, sometimes I can procrastinate and maybe through that Process, or maybe through, you know, reflecting on it or something. Ultimately, uh, another option comes comes around. You know, it's not it's not procrastinating and doing the things that need to be done. It's procrastinating, I think, on the things where somebody goes, "Hey, you know what we need?"
0: <laughs> right. Impressive. You know. Yeah. 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 Um, one one thing I'm curious to go back and and hear a little bit more about when you talk about barrel aging and and the time involved and what people say versus what's real. Um you know it seems like that's certainly one of the 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 long lead time aspects. The uh the the years typically spent in a barrel. Um are there some things that you can do operationally um to to try to reduce that lead time and and maintain or even improve quality?
1: Yes, there there are um, and Uh, You know, part of that, I think, for me, the benefit is, you know, with my problem-solving background is like I can dissect this thing and say, wait a minute, um, and question things. You know, one of the things I, one of the things I questioned a lot was, gee, why, why is it, and you went to Scotland, why is it all the Scotch makers want these used bourbon barrels? And you know the assumption is well, there's bourbon flavor in there, and they're picking up some bourbon flavor. So we make a rum and we age it and use bourbon barrels. And in the beginning, I didn't have any used bourbon barrels, so I mm. bought some mm-hmm. another distillery. And what I found out is, you know, these notions that oh, you know, some people would say, oh, you put a few gallons of water in that barrel and, and leave it in the sunshine, slosh it around, and you'll get bourbon out. No, you don't.
0: <laughs> Right,
1: right, and oh, by the way, the barrels that go to Scotland aren't barrels; they're staves. They break the barrels down into the individual pieces. They palletize those and ship them to Scotland. Those yeah. those pieces of wood are dry as a bone when they get there. Right, there's no bourbon sloshing around inside a barrel, and so it puzzled me. You know what? What is it then? And and um, one of the things that that. A piece of the puzzle that I found was the the oak, when it's been exposed to alcohol for long periods of time, um, as in bourbon storage, it tends it starts to break down the lignins in the wood and releases vanillins and those mm. caramel butterscotchy notes. Right? And and what I've learned, Mark, and I you know I was terrible at chemistry in school and I'm still not great at chemistry, but what I've learned is There are real chemical reactions that take place um, between the various things like, for for example, um, ethanol and acetic acid, which is vinegar, which is produced during fermentation. And when you combine ethanol and acetic acid, you get ethyl acetate, which is a chemical that has in lower concentrations has a fruitiness and a sweetness
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and it's often a chemical used in artificial fruit flavorings because of that Um, and and so these things are taking place in there and um the, the big guys are at a disadvantage you know you're you're a big guy you're producing a couple thousand barrels a day you don't have the opportunity to you know, manipulate the barrels, move the barrels, transfer product to different barrels, etc. You make two barrels a week. You can do that, mm-hmm. right? So, so yeah, definitely one of the things I considered before I went into the business is look, I can't wait eight years, four years, twenty years to to get cash flow. That's just not going to happen. And so had done done various sort of things to try to determine a way to achieve the outcome um, in a shorter period of time. And and I'm going to tell you what, one of the things we have, the strategy that, you know, single barrel products and at barrel strength. So when our product comes off the still, we can go directly into a barrel without adding water. The proof is below the legal limit, Mm -hmm. and we can go directly into the barrel without water. Most major distilleries, the big ones, distill at a proof above the legal limit for going into a barrel so that they have to add water. So they cut the flavor once. Then they come out of the barrel and add water. They cut the flavor again, which means you have to have a lot more flavor to start with. We don't put water in it after the barrel either. We don't put water in it any time after the grain is cooked. And so that's a big deal, right? We don't get as many bottles. I don't get to stretch it as far, blah, blah, blah. But um, it doesn't need to age nearly as long as you would think. Most people that try our product, you know, nowadays it's funny because the, the the gentleman who ran the Old Crow operation um, for about 20 years, he he would have been called the master distiller back then, but they didn't call him that. Um, he 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 visits us regularly. Um, he said, you know, when we operated this facility, if the bourbon got eight years old, we thought it wasn't any good anymore. Their their target was to sell at no more than four and three quarter years. Okay. And and they believe that over eight years old is just too much tannins. It was too oaky, too woody, too whatever. Now everybody thinks, oh, if it's not eight years old, it's no good, right? Um, and so, again, that's how the preferences
0: Yeah. Change.
1: But, but, what, you know, people leave it. Well, how old is it? And I say, look, I'll tell you what, <laughs> you taste it and you tell me how old you think it is. Yeah. Not a single person gets it right
0: <laughs> well you know there there's and 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 there's a difference um yeah, I mean, I guess some of the you know the the quality of the proof is in the tasting you no know, no pun intended um you know do you do you like it? Does it taste good? but you know I think of um you know there's trends uh, particularly with scotch when you've got long lead times, it's incredibly hard to forecast the cycles and popularity of scotch, there's, there's more and more uh, product coming out without any age statement. So instead of a 12 year scotch, we, you know, the the producer will, you know, get, give it a different name and put it out and they go like, Oh, wait a minute. There's, they don't say anymore. It's not aged minimum 12 years or, you know, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad or or worse. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. And so, Let's, let's look at that from the, you know, lean standpoint. First of all, you can't forecast next week, let alone four (laughs) years, whatever. Right. Right. So it, you know, that, that is a major challenge is trying to understand what, what's going to be, you know, what's my demand going to be four years from now or eight years from now or something. So I don't have to worry about that because, we can make it taste great in six months or less, actually. Um, but uh, if, if you think about it, right, the, the issue with an age statement, because the law is clear, the law says if it's less than four years old on a whiskey, this is U.S. law, you mm-hmm. must have a statement stating the youngest whiskey in the bottle. Okay. Well, that's a black mark for the big guys, so they don't want to come in under four years so they're going to put everything as basically four years or more with a few exceptions okay right then then the law says if however it's more than four years old and you put an age statement like age eight years then you're not allowed to put anything younger than eight years in that right. bottle right so there's constraint right you're you're handcuffed basically because the question isn't, how old is the stuff? The question is, does it taste right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you can have something in a certain part of an aging warehouse that after four years tastes as good as something else that sat for eight years somewhere else. Right. Like part, part of the issue in Scotland is very mild temperatures, very damp conditions. Mm-hmm. Things age much more slowly in a mm-hmm. barrel than they in somewhere like Texas or mm-hmm. Kentucky it's other hot, right? Yeah,
0: a year is not a year. Uh, yeah. A year is yeah. not a year I mean, well, exactly.
1: So, so those are the variables. <laughs> I mean those are those are the challenges but also the fun part to be able to say okay, you know. So there a lot of org, a lot of the companies are moving away from the, the age statement instead mm-hmm. of saying years old, you know, because that that's constricting in a way it's like a, it's like, you know, say a Knob Creek eight year old. Okay. Well maybe I've had something in the warehouse only for five years and by golly, it tastes really great, Mm -hmm. but I can't put it in that eight year old bottle. Yeah. So that's why they're getting away from that statement is is it frees them up to have a little more flexibility with where they put the product.
0: Right. Well, I was just going to say a friend of mine recently brought me a bottle from a distillery in College Station, Texas, and I'd never had it before. He did the tour. He brought me a bottle back, which was really nice of him. And it it says, you know, clear as day on, on the bottle aged six months. And I'm like, wow, that's a really young, barely aged whiskey. And, you know, but, you know, in a way I'm like, well, you know, in a way you're really kind of tasting a more pure expression of what they distilled. You know, I, my, my comment to my friend was I would have almost rather tasted it completely unaged without any influence of the oak. Cause it was just barely, barely aged. I'm like, well, you know, but it's just, you know, it's, it's different and, uh, you know, enjoy being able to try different things. I, I still can't wait to get up there to Kentucky and, uh, and try what you're try what you're producing. So, me just kind of, you know, I'm curious me, you know, for the listeners who are really um, in into bourbon, can you give, you know, a little bit of a rundown of the different products, different expressions that you're producing, where where people can look online to learn more about what you're producing?
1: Well, uh, online they can see us on either Facebook or our um, our webpage, blenscreekdistillery.com. Um, and we're on Facebook, Fleming's Creek Distillery on Facebook. Um, so we, we are actually introducing a couple of new things right now. Um, you know, Kentucky certainly is well known for bourbon, and so I wanted to, to have bourbons. We actually have two bourbons, uh, that we distill that have different uh, grain, you know, recipes, also known as the mash bill, um, and then we do a, a rum from molasses. So kind of different. You know, you don't typically think of Kentucky as a rum place, but uh, our rum has got gotten a lot of of um, you know good good feedback, and people really like it. And then we make a couple of other products that the government classified as a specialty spirit because they don't fit into the categories of, you know, whiskey or tequila or vodka or gin or something. Um, so, you know, we're, we're we're making things that might appeal to different tastes that, that people have. Um, and, you know, uh, let me go. Uh, I kind of want to go back to your comment because because, And I want to tie this, because almost everything can tie back to problem solving. I know I told you, or you, you were going to ask a question about, you know, that I commented that the Toyota guys were always telling us, you know, all we do is problem solving. You know, they would go back and forth between all we do is problem solving, or all we do is PDCA, and they sort of use those interchangeably. Um, but, but if you think about it, everything can be associated to, to this problem, and one of the Mistakes that people make in problem-solving, pretty common, is mistaking correlation for causation. And correlation is to say, well, I tasted a six-month-old uh, bourbon and it just tasted really young. Therefore, all six-month-old bourbon is going to taste young. That's a correlation, right? Um and so I find that a lot. And, and what, what I've experienced and what people have done to try to shorten the aging time, one of the hypotheses is that a smaller barrel, because of the ratio of liquid to wood content, a smaller barrel is going to age the product more quickly. Okay? A very common belief amongst startup distilleries. So me being, you know, the guy who's going to say, well, let me test that hypothesis to see if it's <laughs> valid. Right. Because yeah. on a logical standpoint, I can say, yep, yeah, okay, you get a little bit more wood surface area to liquid ratio, but does that really make a difference?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, but the flip side is, and what, what you read or hear or see, you know, from these people reviewing bourbons or take, you know, even some that I've tasted is, they, they taste the product, they know the distiller used a small barrel, and they go, you know what, you can't make a good product in a small barrel. Because the product, quite frankly, doesn't taste that great. And then they look and they go, oh, you used a small barrel, and you only aged it 12 months. Can't do it. Can't make good whiskey fast. I heard that hmm. over and over. Can't make good whiskey fast. And I'm sitting there going... Geez, I got some stuff three months old. People are raving about it. <laughs> I think it's pretty darn good. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what good is. You know, I'm thinking, I don't understand. I had a guy, this is an industry expert, sitting in the distillery there one day. We're chatting and we're tasting and stuff. And he said, you know, point blank, you just can't make good whiskey in a small barrel. I said, really? Okay, huh. And he'd already tasted some of my stuff that came out of a small barrel and told me how good it was, right?
0: <laughs> but he, did, he didn't know? He didn't know it was a small barrel? No, he didn't know.
1: No, I didn't tell him. <laughs> so I handed him a sample of a product I had produced, and he tasted it. He's like, man, this is, this is great. This is really good. I said, well, you know what? That came out of a 10-gallon barrel. Industry standard's 53, okay? 10-gallon is small. Right his eyes got big and he's like, no, no way. I said, yeah, that was in a 10 gallon barrel and it was in there for a year and a half, which is kind of a long time for us. And he, he just said, well, you just burst my bubble. I mean, you just totally blew out, you know? And I said, you see, I don't know if people are doing correlation. Yes. I've tried some products that came out of small barrels and they were terrible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: that doesn't mean it was the small barrel. Right. There's there's too many other aspects that go into the product and the end result. The barrel is only one of those, right? And then there has to do with how do you handle that barrel during that? You can't treat that barrel the same way you would a 53-gallon barrel, for example. So, so people jump to these conclusions. I had industry experts, people who are – paid consultants in the industry tell me you can't make good whiskey fast. Can't be done. I'm thinking, well, what is fast? What is to you? What is fast? And what they're saying is four years, eight years, you know, it just takes a long time. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, well, I got some three month old. They taste that. So try this. Tell me what you think. Oh yeah tastes like it's about two or three years old so that's about three months old (laughs) and and, you know that those are the same kinds of things you see in problem solving people jump to these conclusions like oh you know i've tried three or four products that come out of small barrels therefore small barrels don't work
0: right i mean that sounds more like a bias like somebody would say uh well a small car is not a luxury car because they were thinking of old Chevys and then Lexus comes out with a smaller
1: (laughs) yeah whatever it is it's it's a bias and it's like okay I, I could agree that I've tasted many products from craft distillers that to me just didn't really taste very good I can't tell you why because I can't pinpoint I've never myself produced anything that tasted quite like those so I can't exactly say how they got that I I can only say that, okay, that might suit some people's preference. It's not mine. I don't know. Um, You know, I don't know how they got it. I can look and I can sort of hypothesize, but I don't have any evidence. You know, if I can't experiment with it myself and test something myself, how do I have any evidence? And that's kind of Toyota's position, right? Data is fine, but we prefer facts. That was a statement (laughs) we heard over and over again so the, you know the, there's that's one of the reasons you know somebody asked me once would i bring in an industry expert to help and i said i i really don't think so and said, well why not because they're going to tell me the same thing that everybody else is hearing <laughs> right and and i don't want somebody to come in and tell me something i i'd rather Take that and say, let's conduct an experiment and let's try to get some, some evidence ourselves and let's see whether that actually is true. Yeah. Maybe. The whole copper still, you got to have a copper still to make good good whiskey. That's another one that's out, out there.
0: Copper as opposed to what, stainless steel? Stainless. What else would you use? Yeah, and stainless.
1: And all our stills are stainless, but we do have some copper in them because it's easy to work with. But, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like everything else, Mark. I, I, you know, a friend of mine forwarded me a, a interview with a company that had done lean, and this is a classic scenario of, you know, in 2004 we started with 5s, and we, you know, yeah. we executed 5s across the facility, and gee, we didn't seem to get any financial gain from that.
0: Like, yeah.
1: Surprise, surprise. And then, we, you know, we went we went on and on, and then and then finally we realize it's not about the tools. And then you know, on and we want, and you know, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. That that kind of thing. I when I see that, it frustrates me because yeah, people are still, they're still repeating that same mantra, right? Oh, you got to start with 5S. Then you do standardized work. Or then you do this. Then you do that. It's like no, that's not Sarah works.
0: Well, I mean, it seems like there's parallels there, whether it's, you know, some of these, you know, conventional wisdom uh, uh, about whiskey making and, and lean. Is it superstition or is it proven fact? And, you know, uh, that those those are you, you, you raise a really good point here that it's it's good can be helpful to challenge the way it's always been done the way it's always been said and say well you know there's 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 probably there's probably a better way
1: well i, I you know one of the kind of philosophies i came into this with because i bought the old crow distillery which is named after dr james crow who was who was a really prominent figure in the bourbon industry because he you know quote perfected or standardized the sour mash process which is predominantly used in bourbon production today. So he's a well-known figure. And, and you know, what I felt was, can we go back to the time when he was making his whiskey? It wasn't called bourbon yet, in the early 1800s. And it was very popular. It was, you know, the number one brand for a 100 years. Um, you know, can we go back to that time? Because you know, obviously humans have been doing this for quite some time and apparently having some pretty good results with it. And so we sort of, I would say, quote, you know, break some of the rules that, that are common out there in the industry. Oh, you, know, you got to do this and we're not doing that or you have, you know, you can't do it this way and we're doing it that way. And so I'm trying to go back to that time and say, you know, without all these modern interventions that we have today can we create a product that's sort of um and none of us would know that because there's no whiskey from the 1800s that we could sample to see Hmm. is is this similar to what would have been done you know 150 years ago
0: retro old-fashioned formulation
1: i know i mean and you know, and I tell people when they come in, I said, "Look, we we don't shy away from modern, modern conveniences. We have electricity, and we have propane, and we have stainless steel. Um, but at the same time, we're we're also, for example, Mark, we we captured a yeast strain in one of the old fermentation tanks. Technically, it would be known as a wild yeast because it was." In the wild, right? Um, that is like totally against the rules. You know, every every whiskey manufacturer is going to tell you they've got a specialized yeast and they control it and they've got these tight constraints on it and blah blah blah. And you know, you don't want to get this wild yeast because it might produce some crazy you know result. Yeah. And we went right out and did it. And um, the result it produces is some pretty interesting flavors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they want consistency day to day, and one of the concerns about a wild yeast is it may not produce consistent flavors. Yeah. Right. And to me, that's an interesting aspect because I want something unique and different. Right. Right.
0: Well, there's, so, there's big producers, and I, I you know, it seems like this is true. Both for you know the big uh, whiskey producers, uh, winemakers, champagne producers. There's some who, de- you know, they 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 part of the quality that they're selling is consistency yeah. year to year. And then there are others who produce a vintage product or something that yeah. is very precisely not exactly the same as what was yeah. produced last year. And you know the one thing that's it's, it's fascinating. I think, you know, when my wife and I went and visited um, a number of champagne producers in in France in December, you go to five different places, you'll hear five different philosophies from different owners and winemakers that are often in conflict with each other. Some will say, oh, you should never do a single vineyard champagne. That's awful. And then you go to another place and there's somebody who's raving about how... (laughs) how yeah. well that works for them and you know, wild is, yeast versus other yeast yeah. and oh you should never use a concrete container and then there's some people who yeah. do and there's no single right way to do this
1: and and i think that's a very good um correlation with lean and and you know over and over people are asking me well you know what's the way to do this what's the right way and you know, how should we do this mm-hmm. and you know and in reality there's a whole bunch of different ways. The, the real issue is, um, are you improving your business and are you developing people and you know, what problems are you trying to solve and are you doing that and are you continuing to get better? Does it work? You know, does it work for you? I mean, in our situation, obviously I'm not going to be able to compete against the Jim beams of the world so we have to have a bit of a niche and it's going to yeah. be a niche. And, you know, to me, that's more interesting because I want to have something that, you know, something that shows our creativity in it or our you know, exploration and that we can say, look, I can't say whether there's something else works or doesn't work. But what we do is this and this is what we get. You know, I'm not going to tell you that something else won't work unless I've tested it myself. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's the same in this industry. And I think the the interesting thing I saw was um, this is kind of digressing maybe a little bit. But um, the modern continuous steel, which is actually would be more lean in in one regard, because it's very mm-hmm. very efficient and produces a, a lot of product very economically, uh, was was first patented in the in Europe in in the early 1800s and adopted in the United States in the late 1800s, and um, one of the early complaints from people from the customers when when companies started to use this was that the product was quote too pure, mm. and What they're really saying is that they, these stills tend to produce, well they produce a constant product at a continuous proof all day and it's continuous. So our still, the proof varies through the production because it's a batch process, right? So from a lean standpoint, the continuous flow is continuous, it's continuous flow still. Uh, the the trade off is the flavor profile is very narrow on a continuous mm. still because it's it out one proof a day. Yeah. So the consumers are used to this, you know, full flavor, sort of broad, you know, complex uh, product. And all of a sudden these distillers come out with this kind of, you know, run of the mill consistency. And so to me, the industry has taken this, what I would consider a weakness, this you know, hey, we have consistency, and, and they're turning it into a favorable, which is a marketing thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, every bottle you buy, you can ex- expect the same experience. Whereas we tell people, hey, every barrel is different. They're going to be a little bit different, um, but they all need to be good. I mean, yeah. If you have a, if you have an experience with one where you don't like it at all, then that's a miss on our part. But if one, you prefer a little of this one over that one, but, you know, you can say that one's a 9.5 on a scale of 10. This one's a 9.6 on a scale of 10. Who really cares? Yeah. You know, if one's a 6 and one's a 9, then then I have a problem. Right.
0: Well, you make the argument for uh, your, your customers who like your product. Hey, you got to collect them all. <laughs> it might be good for sales.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of it too, right? Hey, they're, they're interested in the new release because it might be unique or they might find it somehow a little different than the other one. And some, you know, barrel to barrel, there's certainly similarities and there's differences. And, you know, we evaluate them we let other people help evaluate them. And in in every case so far, it's kind of been a split decision, you know, different people like different ones for different reasons. And so, okay, um, in my mind, you can't really go wrong in that case.
0: Right. Well, so you, you mentioned uh, Jim Beam, and, and I was going to ask you about um, you know circumstances I'd blogged about a couple of years ago, and uh, Jim Beam was purchased by Suntory, a big uh, Japanese yeah. distiller, and you know there was an article in the Financial Times, summer of 2016, about this culture clash which in a way reminded me of the old movie uh gung-ho you know about <laughs> yeah. Japanese. yeah you probably you lived
1: that <laughs> lost in translation yeah
0: yeah but yeah, um, I I...
1: what was that go ahead go ahead i yeah i have lived it
0: yeah, yeah. um but you know it's talking about strained relations in kentucky that as it says here the uh, the centauri chief suggested only minor tweaks to the water purification process but yeah that 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 strained relations as it said that they were trying to figure out the collaboration it said you know for for workers at beam this sounded like criticism of long established practices and you know, the, the, inter, so the interactions were perceived as highly insulting until we reached mutual understanding regarding culture and intention. We figured out that we share a common objective. And I, I think there's a risk happens uh, here in consulting sometimes where, you know, you, you could be technically correct about something. But if, if you don't think about how, uh, you know, something could be viewed as a criticism when you view it as a, a positive opportunity for improvement. I mean, th- this is human nature. We need to think about the way people might react. We think about their emotions, even if it's, quote unquote, just business. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, what, what, what are some of your reflections having lived some of the, uh, you know, the Japanese automaker in the U.S. experience? You're there in Kentucky. What, what are some of your thoughts on that tension?
1: Well, I think certainly we we experienced similar things, you know, in terms of that. Um, the the Toyota guys, the Japanese guys, were were really good about several things. You know, they kept reminding us, "Look, we're not trying to make the Japanese." You know, what we do isn't necessarily Japanese culture. It's it's the Toyota way, and but but you know, there's 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 differences, and it took me a long time and it took some, you know, outside perspective sometimes to understand what was what was happening. But the difference, I think, Mark, in that case was, you know, we went to Toyota with an understanding that we were going to experience something different, whereas Jim Beam was acquired by Suntory and then sort of had to face something different, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, you know, I went into Toyota kind of knowing that whatever I was going to encounter— there was somehow going to be different than what i had encountered somewhere else but it was still difficult right that the the japanese tend to just be um very upfront about a situation and not really think so much about the emotional thing you know japanese Mm -hmm. people are just you know they're conditioned differently right talk about it say hey When you think about the water purification system, they don't take it personally. They don't take it as an insult. They just take it as, oh, something we need to do. But Americans, of course, look at it and go, wait a minute. What do you know about what, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. What do you, you know, and look at the success and look at our results, and now you're saying that we're doing it wrong? And that's what I read that article too. and that's kind of how I read it, and I understood it. I kind of snickered and thought, yep, I can see how that comes about. Right. And, um, but, but you and I experienced that. And you know, the, the, to me, the turning point in my consulting career, I think was, was in, in the discovery of this notion that it's, you know, it's considered disrespectful to take away the privilege of people to solve their own problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, uh-huh. Um, what that means is I can't come to you and tell you, Mark, you have a problem and here's the answer. What I need to do is come to you and say, Mark, what do you struggle with? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, what are the difficulties and where are you trying to go? And let me ha- understand those things and then let me help give you some guidance on how you can approach that, okay? but not come in and say, oh, gee, your water filtration system isn't really uh, great. Let's fix it, and that's the way it came across in the article. And I don't know if that's the way it came across in real life. You know how things yeah. get misinterpreted sometimes in print. Um, but 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 the other thing is this, and I you know Japanese culture is really interesting and fascinating. And and I watched this show once with this their. Showing this guy, this he's 80 years old and he's been doing sushi for, I don't know, whatever, 60 years or something. And they're interviewing this guy and he's talking about, you know, every day I try to find him, you know, to get better at my process and learn how to make, you know, make it better. And he's, you know, after 60 years, he's still practicing and, and i think that's a common mindset amongst the japanese whereas americans want to go yeah i've been doing this a couple of years i'm an expert
0: or i took a one week i took a one week class i'm an expert <laughs>
1: yeah well it's like the term master distiller you know uh, yeah. it, it's, it's gotten it's gotten this bad bad rap in the industry because people go well you buy a distillery you can call yourself a master <laughs> distiller is really a master and the Japanese look at it and go, you know what? You never actually achieve mastery. You're always striving for mastery, no matter how good they get. And we we want to go, oh, you know what? Yeah, I, I did that. I'm, I'm pretty darn good at it. I'm a master now. Yeah. So so I think that was part of the conflict there is, you know, the Japanese just view it as, look, we can get better. And the Americans look at it and go, hey, you know what? We're pretty good. And one of the most common... Refrains, I think, at Toyota that we heard was that, and the, the fear, the biggest fear that they had was what they called big company disease,
0: uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. complacency, right? They, they really, at the time I was there, they really were afraid of becoming number one because um, what they were concerned about is everybody would sit back and go, look how great we are, right? And so they really tried to play that down and, you know, not the number one. And, um, and you know, I think that's probably a, a lot of what's going on within the Jim Bean culture. I mean, they are the number one bourbon, um, and certainly been, been highly successful. So somebody else comes along and gives you a tip wow. and it's kind of offensive.
0: Well, think of back when new me got started, uh, GM, was probably still the largest automaker in 1983, 1984. And there was, I'm sure, a lot of pride. People said, look, you know, know, maybe somebody might have admitted, oh, you know, we've got some problems, but we're still pretty awesome. So who are you to come in from Japan and tell us how to build cars or how to manage people? But there was an article, um, and I'll I'll link to both of these um, on the blog page for this episode, Um, 2015, there was an article about um, Suntory. And I think this was pre, this is right about, this might've been before they bought Jim Beam, but there was an article from, here's the term um, you mentioned, Master Distiller from Suntory um, talking about what he calls continuous refinement. And I think there's an interesting quote here. He said, if the Yamazaki great whiskey you hold in your hand, that's my comment. Sorry, his quote was: "If the Yamazaki you hold in your hand tastes the same in ten years, we have failed." And it's not that it you know it doesn't change in the bottle, but I guess compared to what they made ten years ago, um, so he said you know changes for the better are encouraged both in taste and process. So there's there's that mindset that you talk about, they, they don't want it to be the same every year. Um, You know, my my friends down at um, Garrison brothers um, out west of Austin, they do an annual release and, and they, it's different. You know, they, they would say, you know, they're trying to get better at at what they're doing. Um, But, you know, they're younger and they don't have the history of a Jim Beam that probably, you know, Jim Beam drinker wants it to taste like Jim Beam. I'm sure they're, accustomed to that, condition, to that differently than people drinking craft products.
1: Well, I think, you know, the other part of it is um, this, I, I think culturally Japanese people aren't indoctrinated as much with this personal pride as maybe cultural pride or, you know, other kinds of pride, whereas Americans, particularly around Kentucky, you know, can be a little bit, you know, stubborn about, Hey, you know, we know what we're doing. We're pretty good. And so, so that was, I mean, the good thing about us at Toyota, um, you know, was with very few exceptions the people that we hired, I mean, I, I interviewed hundreds of people and I probably count on one hand how many of them even had manufacturing experience. The closest I came to anybody with automotive experience is somebody that worked in a carburetor factory. Uh So most of the people who came into the organization didn't have years or decades of experience. And so you get to Jim Beam, you got people there who've been there 30, 40 years. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, you need to change this, right? and and it's hard. I mean, it's hard for anybody to say, wait a minute, you're, you're questioning something that I've worked 30 or 40 years to, to develop, you know? Yeah. But I think that, I, I don't know, I haven't heard anything lately and I have encountered some of the employees. Um, and, you know, I think the general consensus of the people I've talked to anyway is there's, there's been some good things come out of that. Um, collaboration between those two organizations
0: yeah i mean you know even that article it talked about the tension implied that they were figuring it out that they were working past that and there certainly you know it was a 16 billion dollar um acquisition uh there's a lot of incentive to figure things out
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah but it really is um I, I, it's a fascinating industry from my perspective as a outsider somebody who likes to go on uh, kemba visits if you will to uh, distilleries and and wineries and to um, to certainly taste and explore and there, there's so much to learn about all of these beverages so I really appreciate the chance to uh, really really pick your brain and you know, I, I enjoy how the conversation is kind of weaved Back and forth between lean and bourbon, and and the way you're tying this all together, this has really, uh, really been very interesting for me, and I, I assume interesting to at least some, a couple of other listeners. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we'll find out who else is interested. But you know, it it it's processes, Mark, and and you know, long time ago, it's funny. Um, you know, probably, this is probably 15 years ago, somebody asked me, said, well, gee, you know, you're a lean consultant, you make your living this way. Um, what are you going to do when the next new thing comes along and replaces lean? And I, you know, for for a few seconds, I was a little shocked and scared. I thought, wait, wow, that's it. And then I realized, you know, these things that we talk about in lean, they're not a fad. They're not, there's not a, you know, next new thing, if you think about the concept and you say, well, 50 years from now, is it going to make sense to eliminate waste in your processes and improve quality in your processes and satisfy customers? And and of course, the answer is yes, of course, that's going to make sense. These things we're teaching aren't a certain way to do, op. it's not how you build a car. It's a way of thinking about the process, right? And so, so if you look at any work done by humans anywhere, there's processes. And so that's what kind of one of the things that attracts I me mean, to this is there's, there's processes here and those processes have these variables, some of which you don't have a lot of control over. And then you have to kind of try to understand how to minimize that, right? I don't have. So some people think I have the choice to go out and pick a certain barrel that's going to work better than another barrel. I don't. You know, I call the guy up and I say, I need 10 barrels. I go, I pick up 10 barrels. I don't can't go in there and hand pick barrels that I think are going to age better than others. I can't go to the grain guy and say, Hey, give me your best grain or your good grain or your grain that's going to produce this flavor or that flavor. You know, you think about things like, well, you harvest corn one time per year, but you use it throughout the year and it changes throughout the year. That, that product and storage doesn't stay the same. And so that's a variable, right? And, and so, and the yeast is a variable and the temperature is a variable. And, and you know, so to me, that's, that's the, the exciting part is able, yeah. okay. Which of those variables do I need to really worry about, and which of those variables do I need to let do what they're going to do and and create an interesting result?
0: Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm joking when I say this, but I'm well, well, David, you clearly need to develop corn that's level loaded and ripens evenly throughout <laughs> the year.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I get the joke there. <laughs> yeah, right? or you, know,
0: you need to. Pick a barrel
1: that's, you know, made from wood only from such and such or so and so. And, <laughs> um, and back to your point, right? Whether those things are superstition or fact, I at, at this point in, in this journey, I don't have enough evidence to, to say conclusively one way or another because um, just like in problem solving, we can say, look, if I, if I implement two countermeasures at the same time, uh, that's a fundamental mistake because then I've changed two variables and I don't know which one actually had an impact or not. Right. And, and so part of the trouble, part of the trouble that, that I have in, in, you know, is, is isolating a single variable because there isn't. There's multiple variables, right? The wood changes, the grain changes, the temperature changes, you know, we don't, we don't, complete an entire barrel from one distillation run. So it's multiple distillation runs. It might be in multiple stills. It, You know, so when you look at all those factors, um, it's impossible basically to say, gee, something changed. What was it? Well, I don't know. There's these variables. Let's see what we can do to try to isolate a variable and see if that makes a difference. You know, so... It, it, some days is frustrating, challenging. Some days you scratch your head and go, geez, I don't know why it's doing that. It's, it's acting weird. You know, two weeks, last two weeks, the temperature was below freezing for two weeks in a row. It got down to minus two degrees. Well, we have a quasi temperature controlled fermentation room, but clearly, um, the overall temperature was last. Fermentation slows down and fermentation when the temperature changes, the flavor profile can change. So, so there's all these variables that, you know, the big distilleries want to tell you, oh yeah, we have controls on all those. I'm like, yeah, no, you don't. Not really. You really don't, right? It, it's a completely different animal than than some processes, and that, to me, that's kind of what makes it interesting and challenging. Is, is uh, to to let nature do what nature's going to do to a degree, but also to try to, you know, have it turn out to be a certain way, it, it's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. Figure out what you can control versus what is just going to happen.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I tell people who visit, I said, look, the, the, the final product is influenced by four things. The grain, the yeast, the distillation method in the wood. And in my mind, the distillation method can can either enhance or negate the first two, the grain and the yeast. And then the wood is is kind of a, it's not a wild card variable. There's certain things you can do to uh, create different outcomes, but that takes effort. And if you're producing a couple thousand barrels a day, you really can't put that much effort into it because it would be cost prohibitive. Um, and so then you have to, so the big guys have to sort of let the natural process take the place. Oh, this barrel at the top of this warehouse is going to age to this degree in this many years. They know that they can, they can sort of, uh, anticipate that outcome and I'm sure they have some, you know. Logic behind the scenes and say, look, let me take some of those barrels from that level and some of these from this level and some from that level. And if I combine those together, you're going to get sort of a the average of those, and that's going to be uh, equivalent to the product we're trying to put in this bottle. But it, but it's amazing. I mean, it's an amazingly complex from a, from a manufacturing business standpoint when you look at it. And I contemplate it. It's like there's a lot of variables that go into it. There really are. Not, on our, not as much on our level. I'm talking about the big guys. You know, you're, you're talking about a company that's managing, you know, three, four million barrels, and they're trying to, uh, you know, get those barrels into the different product ranges and the different markets and, and global and way bigger scale than I can even comprehend at this point. So all that from the little, all that from the little state of Kentucky.
0: Uh, I um, yeah, I definitely want to uh, come up visit you sometime. Uh, the the tourism whiskey tourism I haven't done is uh, the bourbon trail. I'm all right. uh, yeah. embarrassed to have uh, not been up there uh, for that. But um, yeah, I, I had a chance to do some consulting in Louisville um, in two thousand and eight which staying at some of the downtown hotels at least and trying a local product i I guess that's why yeah i think i was right when i said i've been drinking uh bourbon for uh for 10 years but yeah i want to come up and uh and and visit and maybe we can do uh another podcast um after after coming up and seeing your gemba in person
1: yeah, well, um, and I'd like to encourage anybody who's in the Kentucky area, we're um, just outside of Frankfort. Um, the Bourbon Trail is actually kind of an official organization, and we we are not part of that trail per se at this point, um, that's a whole other discussion, but... But certainly, um, there's a lot of interesting things to see in terms of distilleries and the process that people are interested in. Uh, We'd love to have have you come up sometime.
0: Yeah, so we'll we'll come visit you and the Bourbon Trail. And um, maybe some of my listeners, or who knows, maybe I'll I'll come up alone or maybe we'll we'll do kind of a Lean Geek small group to... uh, Come come and bother you at the same time.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been really surprised. I I mean I really had no idea before I started down this path that how many people are really interested in bourbon, the process, how many people visit every year and, and are really I mean, we get a lot of geek type people and we like that. You know, you want to come and you wanna talk about the process, you wanna talk about how it's done, you wanna talk about whatever um, we really like that, and that that's kind of what we're what we're known for. And people come, and they say, you know, we learn more about bourbon in the process here than we have in you know all the other tours we've, we've done, and and that that's nice. I mean, that's it's kind of what we like is to be able to talk about what we do and how we do it and why we do it, and um, and to hear people say they appreciate the outcome. You know, that's nice.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, people who, I mean, like a lot of, like a lot of products, people who are into bourbon often really get into bourbon and, you know, it's a all American, uh, spirit with uh, a lot of history <laughs> in, uh, in this country. So it's, uh, something to be proud of. And I, I think it's really, really awesome that you, uh, are that you're doing this and willing to share, um, kind of, you know, dropping double knowledge on us here, uh, bourbon and lean and, all points in between. So thank you. Uh, thank you for doing that here, David.
1: Uh, you're, you're welcome. My pleasure. And of course we have the cool historical pro distillery that was, you know, originally constructed in 1878 and a lot of the, you know, the old buildings that, that are just really, really cool. Maybe a little spooky sometimes a little, you know, <laughs> rusty yet, but, uh, Hey, uh, Something something to keep me busy in the future, you know, fixing those up and kind of preserve that history, I think, is important, too. So anyway, it was great talking to you again, Mark, and let's try not to make it eight years next time.
0: <laughs> I, I agree and um, look forward to doing that. Uh, again, you know, I would encourage people go to GlenscreekDistillery.com. Uh, go look on Facebook and um, like the distillery as i have and uh you'll you'll see a lot of cool updates from david about what's going on there so um thanks again and um enjoyed having you on the podcast again
1: yeah thank you mark My pleasure
0: thanks for listening this has been the lean blog podcast for lean news and commentary updated daily visit www.leanblog.org